0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new season of the Buddhist Center Podcast. I'm your host, Chandra Dasa, and it's very nice to be back after a little break for the summer. We're recording this, actually, only after a couple of weeks break, at the end of June. Hope you've had a great summer, or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, a great great winter. winter. That was the voice for a mystery guest. (laughs) He'll be with us in a second. Hush till you're introduced, young man. Yes, very lovely to be here again, as ever. The world is now full of podcasts. You can't walk down the street without bumping into a podcast if that metaphor works for you. So look, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy what you hear here, all the stories, all the voices, all the tales of practice, please let someone else know. Tell your friends. You can just tell them in person. Hey, you should listen to this podcast. You can write to them. But, of course, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or any of the places that you get podcasts. You know where that is because you're listening to this. On it. On it. Excellent. I'm really happy to begin this new season with someone who's been absent from the podcast for a couple of years. We used to do a series with him, an occasional series called Kamala Shilla's Quarterly. And we used to record Kamala Shilla's Quarterly in the kitchen of his flat or apartment in West Hampstead in London but we're now in a completely different world in many different ways which is going to be one of the themes of our conversation so we're going to welcome Campbell Sheila now to the podcast in his back garden in the very beautiful county of Suffolk in England but he'll tell us more about that in a little minute welcome Kamlo Sheila
1: Well, it's very nice to be interviewed, actually. I used to enjoy
0: those things that we did in London. Late night conversations. I remember by the immersion heater or the boiler or something in your kitchen that would go off every so often during the conversation. Probably, Probably, yeah. In the edit, we'd be listening and in the edit, we'd go, oh, there goes the boiler. (laughs) And sometimes the train would go past outside the window. Constant trains, yeah. So this is a very different world and we're in a very different world in many senses, post-pandemic. Our last conversation was not that long before the pandemic began maybe six months or so. Hmm. Maybe you could just give Hmm. us a bit of a sense of, well, where are we? Where are we in the Garden of England with horses neighing in the distance and blackbirds and barns, swallows and all the rest?
1: Well, it wasn't very long after we talked that we had to leave our flat. And so we took the first gap in the pandemic to look around for somewhere to live. And we found this place in Suffolk. We're not far from Lowestoft. In fact, we're a short drive from the beach. It's very isolated. Surrounded by fields and you might even hear the sound of a horse Although they seem to have stopped doing that now, don't they? Oh, they'll come back They were whinnying and neighing just now We've got a lovely large garden We're sitting in the middle of the rather overgrown lawn, which is great With Lots of wildflowers and birds
0: Delightful shade, which is quite necessary on a sunny day like this A sunny English summer's day We'll probably include a photograph or two with this But at one end of this rather long, almost wild meadow There's a beautiful sculpture of the Buddha Sitting under the tree, already disappearing into the hedge, which I rather like. It's growing up very healthily covered in buttercups and clover and lots of grasses. There's some hedgerow around. We've got some willow trees, poppies, a riot of English garden. This is the best of England, I think, this kind of thing. Pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. good yeah. And the area you didn't say this, but you're living in the grounds of Summer Layton Hall. That's correct, yeah. Which is all very Downton Abbey, if you're listening to this online. If you want an idea of this, it's basically Downton Abbey. He he lives in the grounds, in a cottage, one of many, in the grounds of the local seat of the baronetcy, is that correct? It is a baronetcy, yeah. Baron Summer who owns all the land around here and seems many of the houses. So it's an extraordinary place to come and it seems a fitting place to start. I have no, I have no idea how we got here. Really. It was you just, a complete stroke just, of you luck. You just appeared. Yeah, I know. You just manifested. Yeah, yeah. So those of you who yeah. don't know Camel Sheila from previous podcasts... Oh, yeah. number one go back and listen to the old episodes they're really awesome number two Sheila amongst many things is a very well known and much loved meditation teacher in our community the true Ratna Buddhist community he's also a good friend to many people and has been a kind of stalwart of our order for how many decades do you want to say oh god I was ordained in 1974 please do the math I was born in 1971 folks <laughs> so he's been doing this for a long time and well uh, I'm
1: 73 now and I was ordained when I was 24 Yeah, so and
0: you were also one of the first order members i met from outside of the city i lived i remember coming to a a weekend meditation workshop oh really very near the start of when i got involved with buddhism in a women's community in glasgow oh yeah i remember that that's right and i very davy was very davy and you saluted the shrine and i put my hand up and said what does that mean and you were extremely (laughs) patient you were like shut up well you didn't you might have thought that but you didn't say it. you sort of explained what the words meant or sort of connoted i suppose around saluting the shrine which I found very helpful so thank you for that 30 odd years later in fact it is 30 years later I think we've almost known each other for 30 years next year next May will be 30 years so I guess there's quite a lot to catch up on over 3 years since before just the 3 just the 3 we're not going to recap our whole 30 years The first thing is the world has been turned upside down, hasn't it, in the last two years?
1: We've had the pandemic and all of that's involved pretty globally,
0: isn't it? And apart from moving house to Downton Abbey, what have you been up to during the pandemic?
1: Well, when we talked last, I just discovered the potential of doing online retreats and teaching. When the pandemic started, it was the only way that you could do it. And it became the only way that anyone could do it. For at least a year, I was doing these week-long retreats and I found that a very good medium for clarifying my own ideas and interacting with order members. They were all order retreats and I do retreats on various aspects of Dharma practice. I really enjoyed the medium actually. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that people are practicing at home. There's a little bit of an adjustment to make there. But once you've made it, it's the most relaxing place to practice. You're not on your best behavior in any sense at all. And that's the best place to be when you're talking about quite subtle things, Mm. how you're responding, looking deeply into your experience and so on. And I think that it's really enabled by practicing at home. If people can get over the problem of the fact they're just looking into their computers in their front room or in their kitchen or something like that, if you get over that and can connect with the people on the other side, then it works really well. And I was working with order members, and of course, I know most of them personally, and so it was easier to make a personal connection. So it was just, oh, hello, haven't seen you for a while, but I know you very well. So I think that makes a
0: huge difference. Well, we're going to keep asking you to do mm. stuff online for no order members. Just I'm just telling you that. I'm very, I'd be very happy yeah. to
1: if there was a way to do it. Yeah. But it strikes me yeah. that
0: I remember the conversation quite well before the pandemic. And it's interesting yep. to pick it up again now. And at both ends of that little spectrum of time, there were no restrictions. So people were in a way choosing to engage in that space when it wasn't mm. necessary. Sure. And I think yeah, one of the yeah, things cool. we touched on was well, there's a lot of resistance to it. Most of that centres around not being in person, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah, which is an interesting concept that you're not really with people, even though they're there on computers. But yeah. you're not, you're not physically in. Really with, with them. them. Yeah, and it raises it. all sorts of questions about what it means to be really yeah, with, with another person, doesn't right. or it. to have a relationship, a sense of relationship. Yes, people have relationships with objects all oh, the what time. What about
1: these guys who are listening to this? What kind of relationship do they have with us? Are you real? Yeah, exactly. Am I real?
0: a Good question. Oh, goodness, what? we talked about last time was we thought from our experience of a couple of years of engaging with this kind of context Mm -hmm. that it really was possible to have a meaningful sense of both connection and wider community and then to go deep over time to build up some of the same habits positive habits that some of the same almost like mental muscles kicked in Mm -hmm. if you're used to having a sustained practice Mm -hmm. if you kept up a sustained practice with other people on well at that point it was probably skype not zoom but mm-hmm. you know something would happen that we both recognized i guess the whole world has kind of been thrown into that space where they've really had to test yeah, that proposition yeah.
1: yeah yeah yeah.
0: and so your time working with order members and going deep what's the range of that is it like short retreats is it long retreats
1: well i did the week-long ones but I also have done two three-month ones now over the winter, so I've done long ones as well. So, what's
0: involved in a three month online retreat? Are you just at your computer the whole time? Are you like. Well,
1: I think most of us are at our computer every day anyway, aren't we? No, people could
0: sign up for the whole
1: thing or sign up for just three weeks. I had a minimum, so there would be some depth of engagement. But the great majority of people, in the end, they do things like say, I'll come for the three weeks and see how I get on. And then they just stay for the whole thing. I think there were about 70 of us, did it? You know over that whole period including the three-weekers and the four-weekers so we just had a meditation program and I would do a bit of teaching in the morning I would just do bits of teaching whenever it felt appropriate because over a three month period it's really very relaxed and you'd really get to know what's happening with people individually and, and so it was possible to have quite an intimate teaching situation mm. And it was great because there were some people who were right up there in the I think Rupert is up in the Outer Hebrides somewhere, isn't it? You know, she was there and there were people from Australia New Zealand, it's worldwide. Hmm. So it was very varied. The benefits would have been different for different people. Some people really treated it like a full on retreat. In fact they did solitary practice. Others moved in with a friend and they did it together. Other people were still working, going out, I think, Rupa Chitta, again, just teaching, doesn't she? She going out teaching and getting into all sorts of uh, stuff. So it could be different things for different people. But for everybody, there was the daily practice and the evening, we usually did some kind of ritual and some kind of meditation practice. For even someone who was living an ordinary working life with lots of distractions and things blowing up in their faces... The regular practice was a grounding influence and somewhere where they could still develop their practice in everyday life. And I think that's what a lot of people could really do with.
0: Mm. Well, I find it really encouraging to know that there are just people getting on with that sort of practice every day in a not yeah. particularly dramatic way. They're not going off to the mountains for three months, yeah. which is its own thing and is fantastic if you can do it. But very few people can well, do most that. most people aren't doing yeah. that. Yeah, right. So... There's something really encouraging about it. I've noticed we do these three or four times a year, we have these week-long home retreats. And again, you get... So far, this will be quite familiar to people listening. Pandemic time practice online, internationality, people from all right, over the world. That's you're now, aren't you? We've been doing it for years, that's right. People practicing from all over the world, parents, people working, all the rest of it. One thing I've noticed is we get letters from people who do the retreats that we put on after they're finished. Which I found very interesting because we've got, you know, a dedicated page for the whole retreat with all the sessions embedded and all the materials. I done that as well. That's right. And they have a week off and it doesn't suit the week when we're doing the retreat. But they actually quite faithfully sit at home and do the retreat, which I've been super impressed by. Yeah. I think if you'd paused it to people that that would happen, they'd have said people aren't going to do that in any kind of That's right. Yeah. But they really do.
1: They really do, don't they? It's an accepted thing. I record everything and video everything as well. And I've got someone helping me who puts all the videos up on the resource page, you know, just after it's happened. So people who had to go out that day can get that day's practice or teaching that very day.
0: All of that, in a way, might be quite familiar to listeners. They've been listening to us banging on about online practice for the last couple of years because everyone's had to. And there is a bit of fatigue, I think, just now where a lot of people don't want to spend time. Although I think there is now a kind of well-established basis of practice online. I think the thing I'm quite interested in with you, Sheila, is we were talking the other day about the kind of other strains in your practice and your sort of interest in meditation that have been developing through this time that aren't primarily to do with the online space or the technology and all of the rest of it. And particularly around sadhana. You were talking the other day to me about sadhana and your kind of emerging theory of sadhana. Look at your face. You're like, What? 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 Did I say that? we did, yes Well, nearly so, all my retreats
1: are actually Sadhana retreats yeah. Because they're for order members Do you want to give people a, a little pre yeah, Of what, so, what Sadhana means if you, if you don't so know So exactly, it. people are going to think Well, what is that? Well, it's actually a word that's a, just appeared In the English Dictionary I discovered this week huh. If you look up Sadhana in the Oxford English Dictionary It says something like The build-up of one's life's work Particularly in the fields of religion and music Apparently it must come in from the Indian influence on our culture. It comes from a Sanskrit word, sadhana, which means something like that. It's like a life of practice type of work. You know, if you're a composer or a religious practitioner, you build something up, and that build-up of all the different practices you do and all the different skills you develop in dumb practice, that is considered to be your sadhana. Now, that's a very general use of the word, but it's quite a useful use of the word. What we usually mean by sadhana in triratna Buddhist order is a particular visualization practice where you visualize a figure like the Buddha, Shakyamuni, or it might be Padmasambhava or Tara. And that is considered to be your chosen deity or your chosen practice. So you do meditation practices around that figure. And there are particular special practices that you can do, usually visualization of the Buddha. And there's a sense that you can really connect with them on some level or other. Hmm. You know, so it's, it's a bit like a magical Buddhist practice.
0: Well, that's one yeah. of the things we're going to get into, the magic of it. Yeah. I suppose, again, I really love that broad definition, particularly the connection with the arts and, and yeah. music. And in a way, a lot of people might recognise that general concept in their own life. There's something that coheres through a long life of certain kind of application or interest. Or Yeah, that and, puts it very well, yeah. Yeah, again, it's a very encouraging definition. If you're looking up sadhana, it's S-A-D-H-A-N-A. Look it up in the dictionary see what you find i suppose specifically with the meditation practice a lot of people who have heard of the practice or done the practice will be familiar with the idea of sort of calling down qualities associated with various figures and the idea that what you turn your mind to that's what you become over time. So oh right, you're yeah, cultivating yeah, yeah. a relationship yeah, yeah. Yeah. that feels yeah. transformative it's not abstract mm. you're not really primarily concerned with what's real and what's not real about it something's working and it's happening this evocation of it as magic I was really intrigued by the other day when we were talking. Since I was a kid, I've, I've loved the idea of magic and dragons and all that stuff. So we're not talking Game of Thrones, but what is the magic that you're thinking of? Why is magic the word you go to?
1: Well, I think it's because you have no real idea why it works. It just works, even though the rational explanations are a bit thin. One rational explanation is all Buddhist practice comes from the Buddha. And so the figure of the Buddha somehow contains for you a lot of associations that you can relate to very strongly and so there's a strong connection with that figure and so for you that figure can catalyse or channel dharma teachings but there's clearly an element of magic there and the Indo-Tibetan Vajrayana tradition has all kinds of little details in the way you visualize these figures that definitely make it magical so for example, they use the sort of channels in the body. So you have these different chakras in the body and that's visualized on the figure of the Buddha, on the Buddha's forehead, at their heart, at their throat. You have these points where light comes down to your own chakras in your own body. And this kind of exchange that happens with your visualization of that figure. Now that is definitely very non-rational. You're not trying to understand something you're just relaxing into your trust of their teaching and just really taking that in and being transformed by it
0: but it is still mediated by human consciousness isn't it although you're using the metaphor of externality there's something that you're looking at the whole thing is also contained within the construct of human consciousness at least as we experience it or some sort of anthropocentric way of doing consciousness the reason i mentioned that is i was reading this morning an essay about an aspect of quantum theory that I didn't know people often know that thing about the non-location of different entangled particles affecting each other Uh you know spooky action at a distance thing Uh that Einstein talks about and this is a new area that people are going into more which is almost drilling down into that and seeing that context is almost everything in what they understand of quantum mechanics and there's something magic about all that stuff too because you think well something's happening it's detectable, it means something, and you've absolutely no idea. It can't be
1: explained. It
0: can't be explained. Yeah,
1: yeah. not adequately, anyway. You can yeah. never go, of course.
0: Whether they're quantum mechanical forces or the kind of open-hearted belief force of someone doing a sadhana practice, do you think that's something that applies in people's lives generally and is something that goes on in the background for people in everyday life and their sadhana practice focuses attention on it and gives you a training and how suppose, to touch it.
1: I, I suppose if you've taken in some ideas but you haven't really completely taken it on board, and I'm speaking quite generally, you go away and you live your life and your thoughts come and go and after a while you accept it on a deeper level, you've fully accepted it and it's part of your life and that sort of thing can happen with ordinary life. But in terms of the Dharma, you might take in all the ideas around impermanence, all the ideas around deep transformation. But actually, on the surface, there can be quite a degree of acceptance of it, but no real experience. And I think that real experience, it isn't something rational, it's something you have to open yourself to. That can take place over a long period of time in your life. But also, the way I think of sadhana is more like you already know the truth but there's a large party that hasn't caught up with that the way the sadhana practice works can spark that and give a sort of
0: inner space for that given your definition at the start about a body of work as it were building up over time that's also a description of what happens with the self you build up a body of work that is you over time it's not as inflexible as you might think it is but it feels pretty settled and You've got a sense of continuity and sometimes a sense of change in that, but it seems that the dynamics of this are at least parallel somewhere in that you're making a very particular effort and you're not really concerned with the status existentially of what's happening, you're concerned with the effect. You must change your life. Is it having an effect that is skillful, positive? Yes. yes and I'm just yes. wondering about, is there a parallel and dynamic with seeing sadness as the more consciously directed building up of... Well, there is effort involved, isn't there? you're turning towards a particular constellation of...
1: Well, that would definitely come into it, of course, yeah. Yeah, although I mean, a lot of the work's coming out of the fact that you're going to the area of, of non-self. There is no real, actual mm-hmm. self. It's an illusory construct that we create, this building up of the self, even though we do it. And it's important to us. At the same time, your understanding is growing of the reality of that. Again, it's something that can't really be described. Mm. The form of the sadhana with the lights and the, let's call it the visionary aspect of it, that gives you a framework to play with where it's okay for it to be non-rational.
0: And the fact that it's colour and sound and all that helps. So you
1: have to accept the framework first and I think that's a barrier for quite a lot of people because it just seems religious, it's weird, there's elements to it which you might react to and if you do that, well, you can't really do it. You have to somehow accept the framework, at least in some kind of provisional way, and not treat it too seriously. If people treat it too seriously, the reality of it becomes too hard. Hmm. You need to have a soft, playful aspect to it. Hmm. It's like the nature of your own mind It's something quite evanescent and ungraspable
0: I was just thinking about people listening to this And hearing things like non-self or yeah, yeah, well, Buddhist ideas if It's already get all there, used to if, you, it. if you just see it There's also the way you described that there That soft playfulness hmm. Where you're really essentially just trying to be open to something And letting it work on you Without trying to fix it with yeah, some kind of right. defining framework That makes you feel safe you That's know? right it's almost like a just different move you have to make. And presumably people do that for a reason. They have to see something. something that impels them to make that move. They do it because they have a spiritual
1: commitment. They go for refuge and they want to become awakened. That's why they do it. They see that this is a effective way. It's not the only way, of course, but it's quite an effective way and has a long tradition in Buddhism. What is really striking me at the moment is the whole thing is an exploration of what is our spiritual ideal to use those words Hmm. what is it that we're drawn by in our practice and this is something we probably could think about we probably could articulate it but we probably wouldn't be able to articulate it in a very satisfactory way because it's something a bit mysterious we cannot know what it is because we haven't realized it so you have awakening as an ideal as a concept That we do not realise, but at the same time we're deeply attracted to it. What is going on there? Mm. So I think sadhana practice, and all Buddhist practice really, because there isn't really a complete difference, sadhana practice really focuses on this thing. What is the object of refuge? And it personifies it, so you might personify it as Shakyamuni Buddha. But, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha isn't something we understand. Shakyamuni Buddha might be an object that we feel even veneration and respect for. But why is that? why would you it's because there's something mysterious that we intuit so those things are very mysterious but they're very important to us we don't think about Mm. them very much Mm. so for example in the retreat i'm just about to do we will be focusing on this aspect of our experience it's a good opportunity to do that we don't often take those opportunities because there's too many other things to be getting on with
0: it's interesting listening to you talk about mystery. For some reason, what came to mind was there's mm. a particular talk by Sangraxtra, I can't remember which one, where he talks about the danger of mystery mongering. And he it's does, partly it? his accent when he says it. Mystery mongering. Mystery mongering. Mm. Bad impressions. Bad <laughs> impressions, yeah, people can do much better impersonations of extra But anyway, he talks about mystery mongering. And that's the shadow side, I suppose, of the fact that, as you say, people are just attracted to mystery. And something I read, I think it was this morning again, I should look up the reference, but somebody said, the work of an artist is not to understand the mystery, it's to help deepen the sense of mystery in a way that is meaningful and transformative for people. Something of that comes across in the way you're talking about, the object of refuge or Mm. the thing you are giving your attention to without understanding Mm -hmm. what what it all is.
1: Yeah, that's deepening that sense of mystery But the mystery, it has to have some sort of meaning for you If if one's just attracted to mystery because it's weird and mysterious I think that's just a waste of time Well, that's the mystery mongering thing, isn't it?
0: You can cater to that if you like But it's not very nourishing I mean, it's self-indulgent Esotericism Yeah yeah, All that exotic stuff But if you
1: are of that temperament Actually, there may be something going on Which is wonderful Which needs to be explored It just means the person needs to look at themselves a bit more than the mystery somehow I think that's what it's about. So it's, it's like the image that we have—it's externalized, it's personified, it's out there. But the real image is in the mind, and it can't be accessed
0: directly. Mysterious thing. Hmm. You've also got this long story body of practice yourself around Yeah, yeah. Thing. I learn
1: from it as well <laughs> of yeah. being
0: open. Yeah. How has that changed through the years, and has it changed particularly in the pandemic, or has that been more? oh god
1: well I mean it sometimes just gets more difficult and it's more embarrassing because learning is a process of realizing that you're wrong most of the time you just keep realizing oh I never had that right oh yes they never understood what I said then et etc cetera, et cetera. so that's my experience anyway mm. and I'm sure it's not just my experience there's a kind of experience of undoing of your assumptions what's been great for me the opportunity to do this so many retreats and to do so many retreats At my own i'm in charge of it as it were because i just arrange them and do them whereas before i always had to wait for a retreat center to say yes you can do a retreat next september now i can just do them whenever i like it's a huge difference for me so i can do something every couple of months or every few weeks that seems to me worth doing so i've learned tremendously through being able to teach in that way to having a bit of a platform really
0: and the new rhythms of that and then the Mm. fact that people come and join you in that rhythm and the yes collective element that's presumably something that does happen in bursts when you go to traditional retreat centers and do retreats but it's usually a bit clunky i
1: mean i don't know if it's like this in all traditions but for us in tree i think it's a bit clunky because retreat center makes their program and they say okay would you like to do a retreat in september 2023 and you're going to tell us what you're going to do what topic you're going to choose and you say oh let's do something on the bodhicitta and then two years later or 18 months later or a year later you have to turn up with your material of course we can do it the process isn't so immediately about what's on your mind One of the great advantages for me of this way of doing retreats, I know it's got loads of disadvantages, but one of the great advantages is I can really come from my current experience. It's a huge change. It's never been like this before.
0: It's an interesting point. As the reality of online practice settles into part of people's expectation, certainly as a team we've come under pressure to plan further ahead because there's Mm. now more competition for events and all that stuff. And it makes a certain kind of natural sense, but... There was something about the spontaneity of just being able to respond to what seemed to be needed during the pandemic that was energising in a way, because Mm. currents go through communities like anything else, and Mm. I remember when George Floyd happened suddenly, Mm. there was a lot of attention on that, or occasionally climate stuff, or... Mm just currents of practice that were going. on you could capture the moment a bit at relatively short notice and just invite people in of course that doesn't necessarily make money
1: or attract big audiences it's not just the pandemic it's the global culture that enables that now but i think what the effect of the pandemic is people being much more aware of that of the universality
0: of that dynamic really well the internet having almost for the first time a really clearly defined function that was communal Yes. Yeah. Instead of going and looking into a screen and seeing other people doing things on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, yeah. it's like you can go and take part in stuff with people. Yes. And that yes. being normalised yes. as a thing to do yes. with your time, yeah. and it's now, of course, the world's reopening everywhere and. The competition yeah. is now back with which is in-person good. communal events yeah. where you can Which, go and which do is stuff. great, but, the, great. but,
1: but the, the online thing hasn't gone away. Everyone knows that now, that they yeah, can yeah. go and do a Zoom with somebody they previously never considered that they could have any connection with at all. Or had to travel half the
0: country yes, to get to right. Australia, right, yeah. and it was expensive and all the rest of it. Yes, mm. that isn't going to go away, I don't yeah. think. So does the change in circumstances affect the magic of what you can now do much, now that the world's reopening? Do you think there'll be another shift in the shape of all this, or do you think there's a kind of settled community of people who are just going to keep on that rhythm with you?
1: Well, I don't really know. I mean, I'm a very particular person, and there are very particular people who are interested in what I do. I think it is quite a small circle, really. I don't know how many of the younger Order members even that have much awareness of what I do. So, you know, I'm just working with the people that I know. That may not last very long. You know, I'm not going to last that much longer. I'm just working with that. I mean, people are now talking about there being a very strong sense of a community in my retreats. When I first heard that, I thought, oh, no, I don't want that. (laughs) Because it just sounded like a group thing, you know, like my little group. And I didn't really like the sound of that. But on the other hand, you have to like it. I mean, it's a really good thing that they feel that. In in a way, I didn't want it to get too enclosed and too... Too
0: identified with you. Yeah, that's
1: right. I could feel myself resisting that before I saw the positive side of that. So that made me think that I must try to do some new things, not different places where I do the online things, but more like different kinds of dharma that I would teach. Mm. I think I need to extend my range a bit or explore some new things, and I think I'm starting to do that. So I think that's a result of realising that the pandemic's over and that people are behaving differently and their relationship to this style of teaching is changing. Personally, I'm finding that the same number of people are signing up, but it does tend to be the same people with a kind of sprinkling of newer people so I'm fairly optimistic that it is going to continue
0: Now the other thing that we regularly talked about in yeah. Kamal quarterly is technology and how that affects culture and I suppose that meeting point between the Dharma Buddhist culture and world culture the stuff we take part in every day and we were both interested in the capacity for technology not just the internet obviously the internet runs through things like a river but technology devices all of that stuff which again for many people might seem slightly antithetical to buddhism they might think oh it's all distraction phones and ipads so so just machines we're we're not machines are we we're not machines exactly (laughs) and yet there is something quite exciting about thinking about how these kind of tools can actually augment what we do is it just superficially exciting?
1: I think it is, yeah. It really I mean, is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've I mean, seen your stuff. I, mean, yeah.
1: I mean, we have trains, we have cars, we have means of transport. All these things have made huge changes to human conditions and to the dumb. But fundamentally, it's all the same stuff. And It's when we didn't have those things. If you go back to at least the records of practice in old Tibet where things are very, very basic technology it's just an exchange between people with more and less realisation it's exciting that you can reach people it's exciting that they have much much more control over what they can take in from Mm. other people those things are for sure exciting but it's still a lesser you know, it's not the main thing.
0: OK, I mean, that's sort of true. I suppose the one aspect that might not be quite the same as Tibetan monastery is the democratisation of access to stuff like that. So in the Tibetan monastery, only one person is probably going to put together any texts. Oh, yeah. And yeah, very yeah, few yeah. people are ever yeah. going to actually see them. Yeah. I've watched you at your desk with your yeah. amazing setup of devices and screens. Right. And I suppose what strikes me about that is the devices and screens and stuff are interesting, but secondary, maybe going back again to the idea of sadhana as a sustained body of attention and body of work is you're actually using that stuff to try and shape your own discourse about the dharma you're teaching you're engaging with some of the stuff we host online sangrax does lectures and seminars there is something about having access to all of that in the right hands or with the right mind that is new in a way isn't there really very few people would get to saddle up and ride to the library at alexandria and <laughs> yeah, yeah, take yeah. of everything
1: I was just trying to imagine just now when you were talking, doing all that with the old technology. And I can remember right back before we even had those green screen Amstrad oh, computers yeah. and uh, I had a ZX Spectrum. I can remember before that we'd have things like Philofaxes, But I can still imagine having eight books open on a table. Sure. And having lots of notebooks and having yeah, yeah. lots of systems with tabs and a bit like as technical as a computer because you'd get geeky with that's right what you had yeah so i can still imagine that you wouldn't know what you're missing but you'd still be trying to do it you would own a lot more books
0: it would probably take more of your time in the sense mm. that it'd be very difficult to do anything else around that because the effort required to collate all that material and keep it available it does go a bit faster with some aspects of technology at least less distracted
1: yeah you wouldn't have Facebook on your computer at the same time I'm sure you you. wouldn't have this 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 and this happening at the same time you wouldn't have the opportunity to catch up with the news and all those things Mm. playing music at the same time you wouldn't be doing that
0: Mm -hmm. isn't that a bit of a digitally regressive argument where it's like suddenly everyone born into that technology natively is just doomed to be more distracted than us isn't there a way that human consciousness is going to work a bit differently people will Study differently, do depth differently, yeah. multitask in, in different ways. Yeah. That
1: you have to be disciplined, really disciplined, yeah. to make modern technology work. And I guess we're all learning that the hard way, very often.
0: But I wonder if the way you and I are learning it, because we remember when z spectrums Spectrum's tape-loading computers came out. Yes. I was with my nieces yeah, on yeah, this I trip, and they're five yeah. years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And they've got so much facility with technology that... Yeah. I remember yeah. being intimidated by, like a decade ago. Just yes. you know, they're oh, just really? like swiping really? away, and yes. there's a depth of expectation that they have about the way they receive information. Yeah, and it seems to yeah. me it's too early to call whether that is per se more distracted because it's device based or whether. Oh, I it's... don't
1: think it is per se more distracted. I, right. All, all I was referring to was just the fact that the way our technology is set up, we have just so many possibilities. Yeah, and that itself is somehow distracting. I just mean the fact that all these things are simultaneously possible. Mm. So you really have to sort out in your own mind what not to do and where not to go.
0: So I guess to round this off, what's exciting you now? <laughs> what's exciting you about life, practice, culture? What's exciting? Yeah, what's emerging more? for you? You've been doing a lot of writing and a lot of thinking. Mm.
1: I think I'm getting a much clearer understanding of the areas that I'm teaching in around order, practices, Buddhist practice a lot more clarity I find that exciting but I still very much feel that I really need to do a solitary retreat I haven't really stopped mm. for this entire period and I've realized this year that there's a really strong need to do that so I've planned doing three months retreats for the ultimate, but I haven't done a solitary myself I need to do that so I'm looking forward to that kind of simplicity excitement about the future and what can come out of what I'm doing it feels like quite early days you know we've moved to this new area during the pandemic so we've hardly had any opportunity to make any connections locally i think for me there's another year of just settling in really to things and there's always been a question mark about whether this way of working i can sustain it well i think i can i think it's going to work financially you know going to be able to continue without trying to think of what i'm going to do to earn money this is supporting me so that's good yeah that's great i would like to have a more varied kind of output i've been thinking of starting doing meditation classes locally so as you can tell i'm still exploring really yeah it's a bit of a new wicket is that the right word a new wicket uh, yeah yes. a new wicket still working out what kinds of things i should be doing in these circumstances
0: Hey, I just had an idea I was just sitting mm-hmm. listening to your soft voice and mm-hmm. the sounds of the garden mm-hmm. particularly the bird song and, and just the wind in the, yeah. the wind in the willows <laughs> yeah. over there And I let's mean, try
1: and see if we can tune into the sounds of this yeah. space we're in now it's going to include the space that you're in, the listener so you might have all kinds of sounds around you But there's also the sound, once you get really still, of your own body. And all the very subtle sounds of the breath, and even other sounds. You just stop and listen. So, we never got a whinny, we never got a neigh from the horses.
0: Got lots of other nice sounds. Yes, not a whinny, not a neigh, but the wind and bird song, Whatever that is. Blackbirds and barn swallows, I can see, flitting around. You know, it'd be good to do more podcasts where there's just the sound. I've been following one where a guy, yeah. a guy goes yeah, yeah, yeah. walking around to Japan on his holidays yeah, yeah, from work yeah, yeah, yeah. and he just yeah. records sounds, urban sounds, country sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They're all good, aren't they? Beautiful they? The ones, to yeah. listen to. Um, yeah, I agree.
0: So hey, thank you for letting us sit in your garden with you.
1: Well, it's been nice talking to you and talking to everybody here and I wish you all well.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll do this quarterly again. Maybe if I...
1: I'm always very happy to talk to you and just come and, <laughs> come and see you. we
0: can just do it online. We even. can do it online, it's true. But there is something nice about being here embodied yeah. and meeting people to talk in their gardens. So, hey, I hope you've enjoyed hearing Sheila's reflections on the magic of sadhana and the encouragement of taking seriously, but not too seriously, a body of transformative work through a life. We'll be back soon with another episode in season two of this podcast, 430 odd episodes in. I'm not sure how many seasons we can divide that into, but hope you're well and safe and happy wherever you are, and we'll see you again online soon. Bye for now.